I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Our scripture reading is uh, really through the first half of verse 6. It's one of those places where in the uh, uh, versification done by that relatively unknown um, Bible scholar years ago, uh, he here truly made a mistake because uh, verse 7 should begin with the second half of verse 6. And many of us have translations where the indentation to show the new paragraph begins indicates that. So, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6a, reading from the English Standard Version translation. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to hear the Spirit, your Spirit, uh, teaching us in these words the things which we need to know to more faithfully believe the gospel, faithfully believe in our Savior and Lord Jesus, and then more faithfully live out the life that you've called us to live as Christians. We would ask that sitting under the teaching and preaching of your word would build us up in our holy faith and enable us to be uh, the men and women that you've called us to be, that we would be disciples of Jesus, that we would be salt and light to this generation. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to note the title of the message today, and then I want to begin by saying that it's surprising that godly yet imperfect parents should have children who are antagonistic in their unbelief against the Christian faith. One very notable example of this is Frankie Schaefer, the youngest child of pastor and theologian, Francis Schaefer, and his wife, author, writer, Edith Schaefer. Their lives and ministry and their life's work gave so much to the defense and confirmation of Christianity, biblical, evangelical Christianity, beginning in the 1950s and continuing for some, at least some four decades. Yet their son, Frankie Schaefer, today at age 64, would describe himself and paradoxically, as an atheist who believes in God. But, and this is huge, it's not the God of the Bible that he actually believes in. 
So when the Huffington Post interviewed him in uh, 2014 about his new book, um, a book he said was directed toward young evangelicals, said this, one of my aims is to unhook them from allegiance to the Bible as something they follow instead of their own conscience or, ironically, the example of Jesus. That's the choice you have to make if you're going to be a humanist Christian. I want to introduce younger evangelicals to the idea that they have to recalibrate their loyalty. They can live by the Bible or they can live by Jesus. They can't do both. In other words, to be a really good person in this world today, you can't actually believe in the Bible. You can't actually believe in a Bible-based Christian faith. Instead, you have to choose either your own conscience or you have to choose a Jesus who's divorced from the Bible. Now, the shocking reality is how can someone grow up around the faith like Frankie Schaefer, actually see people have their lives thoroughly changed by the message that his parents was pre were, were presenting, the messages presented at Labrie, how can he grow up and see incredible changes in people's lives and yet develop such a great antagonism toward this faith? But this is no different than what we find in this story in Mark chapter 6, which relates how those who lived and saw Jesus during the 30 years of their upbringing, his upbringing, would in fact reject Christ. In fact, these six verses have nothing less than a very vivid illustration of what the Apostle John says in first chapter of John, verse 11, when he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, in the bigger picture, John is referring to the whole Israelite nation because Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in a very particular sense, this verse in John is directly illustrated in this story because no group of Israelites could ever be more his own people than the citizens and relatives of Jesus in the town of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. So the theme of this story, the theme of this episode in the life of Christ, is unbelief. Now, think about this in the greater context of the narrative that, that, that Mark has been presenting. This is the fifth of five stories where the question of faith presence, absence, or in spite of, is very, very significant. So think back the previous four stories. Two of them deal with Jesus and his incredible sovereignty over, first of all, the forces of nature when he calms the storm on the sea, and then his incredible power, supernatural power over the supernatural when he casts out the legion of demons from the demoniac. And then we have two more stories. Now, those stories, those first two stories, are done in the absence of active faith. Uh, we find no active faith in the disciples because Jesus says to them, What? Have you no faith? When they're frightened because they think they're going to drown. And then, of course, the demoniac doesn't come to Jesus because he's somehow a sensitive speaker who has some buddy faith growing inside of him. He comes totally against his will because he's totally controlled by demons. 
and yet Jesus causes faith to be born in him when he casts those demons out. And the next two stories are about the story of a suffering woman whose faith draws her to Jesus for the sake of healing. And, and, but her situation is one where she, truly it's, she's, she's, it's, she's hopeless in terms of all the things that physicians could do for her. And then we've got the next story where, where the suffering father whose daughter actually dies, and that's an impossible situation, but in both cases we see that faith is there and tremendous things begin to happen. So four stories where faith gets strengthened, faith gets created, faith gets increased, faith gets vindicated, faith gets rewarded. Mark makes it very clear in those four stories that faith in Jesus is the personal application of those stories. Jesus is the object of faith. Faith is placed in Jesus. But then the great contrast. Here we have the stark reality of unbelief. Mark presents the truth that Jesus is not universally embraced, that Jesus is not seen as the Savior, that Jesus is not the one in whom people put their trust. So two stories where faith is not really operative, two stories where faith is present and a means of grace, and now this story where we find the opposite of faith. We find a kind of anti-faith, a kind of active believing against the person and power of Jesus, what we can call an antagonistic unbelief. Now, the story is going to teach us uh, three things that we can discern here. That antagonistic unbelief produces an insincerity in those who have it. Um, Antagonistic unbelief is offended where there is actually no real basis for offense. And then we find that antagonistic unbelief exists where we would have rightly expected the opposite to be there. And the main point of this, really half of the main point in all of this, the rest of the main point at the end of the message, but half of the main point is this. Unbelief is never justified. Unbelief is never justifiable. Unbelief is always without cause. Now, to begin with, the nature of the unbelief that we find here uh, produces insincerity. That's clearly what we're being shown by what Mark presents here. Now, the setting is a synagogue on a Sabbath day. Jesus is teaching. This was usual and customary. Uh, for this kind of thing to take place. And then many, we read, are astonished. And in that astonishment, Mark records the questions which they are raising, the questions which they are asking. They ask this, where did this man get these things? This is in verses 2 and 3. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters with us? Uh, These questions are, are raised in astonishment, and the Greek word astonishment there uh, is actually a, a rather how should we say this, a more sophisticated kind of word in the English language than, than the Greek actually would present. 
The Greek there actually means something more like flabbergasted. The, the, the folks are flabbergasted at Jesus in all of this. But the questions are clearly not a positive response to Jesus at all. Uh, what they reveal, on the one hand, is they've acknowledged the two great evidences of the true nature of Jesus as a man of God. These questions recognize and acknowledge this great wisdom. Uh, they recognize the miraculous powers which he have done. But on the other hand, as Matthew Henry points out, while they admit the premises, they deny the conclusion. Which is to say, in other words, if you admit that Jesus has all of this wisdom, if you admit that Jesus has done all of these great and miraculous works, then why do you refuse to admit the conclusion? Why do you admit that Jesus is certainly, at the very least, a great prophet from God? So, this indicates the true nature of these questions. They're not asked to promote sincere learning. Rather, they are asked in order to support and to buttress opposition against Jesus and opposition against the truth. The questions are insincere with respect to finding out the truth about Jesus. But I would submit to you that is the very nature of insincere questioning. They are posed and always posed to strengthen the questioner's position to retrench or to strengthen a particular mindset rather than to advance a person's understanding. In contrast, when questions are sincere, they're asked in order to remove hindrances or whatever might stand in the way of a true understanding. Do you see this? Have you seen this in your own experience at times? Have you had a situation where what you did might have been ambiguous? When you tried to explain yourself and you were asked a series of questions about what you've done, you recognize that these questions are antagonistic rather than questions that are designed to help the person understand why you did what you did. Antagonistic unbelief always generates insincerity. Now there's a lesson then with respect to us. And this is helpful to you, helpful to me, in terms of dealing with people. It might be family, it might be relatives, it might be co-workers, uh, where discussions about the Christian faith might arise. And here's what you need to know. Your moral responsibility before God is always to the truth, which means you are never under a moral obligation to God to answer questions that are insincere. You are never, ever under obligation to answer questions posed of you that flow out of an unbelief that is simply being used to strengthen that unbelief. How do we know this? Why do we know this? 
because this is one of the lessons that we find in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent's question to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, was entirely insincere. The serpent didn't ask that question in order to gain a better understanding of what the sovereign creator had actually said. The question was asked in order to lay a trap in order to pull Eve into sin. Eve had no moral responsibility before God to even attempt to answer this serpent's question. And we all know it would have been best if she had said nothing at all. Now, the second thing that this story presents to us with respect to unbelief is this. It is the nature of unbelief to be offended where there is no true basis for offense. Uh, Although Jesus has done his fellow citizens, his fellow townspeople, absolutely no wrong, they are offended at him. It it really fits the biblical description that we find uh, in Psalm 35 and in Psalm 69, where it's said about, the psalmist says, they hated me without cause. Uh, That really applies to what Jesus is going through here. They hated him without cause. Uh, It's what verse 4 is really reflective of as well, where Jesus says, no prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his own people. But I want us to think about the psychology of unbelief here that would generate being offended when no actual real cause for offense exists. What is really going on in the minds and hearts of those in Nazareth who are offended by Jesus? Well, looking at their questions, looking at their reaction, we can say in point of fact, they are offended by the reputation of Jesus that is true. They are offended by the works of Jesus that are miraculous. But why does this offend them? It's the most important question we can ask. Why does this offend them? Why does the... Does the, the, the the actions of Jesus and the person of Jesus, why does his person and power offend these fellow citizens from Nazareth? What helped me to understand this and to arrive at an answer is something I read a long time ago, a number of years ago, in a book titled Idols for Destruction. Now, uh, this book was reissued maybe a decade ago because it's one of the most incredible pieces of work done by a Christian author, Herbert Schlossberg, uh, historian, and he dissects our culture and society according to the number of things that are idolatrized in our culture. Um, Excellent book. But it's the second chapter. He describes a French word, resentment. Resentment. To explain how among certain people, The worst that you can do to them is to be more successful or notable or to achieve more or to have a larger but truly well-earned reputation than they do. Um, Schlossberg describes it this way. He says, the word resentment 
is stronger than the English word resentment. He writes about it this way. Resentment begins with a perceived injury that may have a basis in fact, but more often is occasioned by envy for the possessions or the qualities possessed by another person. Then he adds to this, this phenomenon differs from mere envy or resentment because it is not content to suffer quietly, but has a festering quality that seeks outlet in doing harm to its object. Resentment has its origin in the tendency to make comparisons between the attributes of another and one's own attributes. Wealth, possessions, appearance, intelligence, personality, friends, children. Any perceived difference is enough to set the pathology in motion. Resentment whispers continually, I can forgive everything, but not that you are. That you are what you are. That I am not what you are. Indeed, that I am not you. The other's very existence is a reproach. Now, the word resentment here properly describes what's going on in Nazareth in their reaction to Jesus. This is what they're feeling. It is as if they were saying to him, you have become so much more than we have, and this offends us. They were offended that such as he, a mere Nazarene, like the rest of them, should be able to do so much more. And what he is, they are not. So it's as if they're seeing the greatness of Jesus as a negative referendum upon themselves. He's gone out and he's done great things. They haven't. His exploits of greatness make their lives seem small and insignificant. This is more than they can handle. They are greatly offended at Jesus. Now, if we take all the factors together that we would think about from the scriptural and the gospel accounts concerning the chief priest and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, all of them together, the high priestly family in particular, and seeking the crucifixion of Jesus, if we were to take all of their motivations and condense them into one complex idea, this word resentment would greatly capture it. Even Pilate perceived that the chief priests had delivered up Jesus to him because of their envy. Now, it really does seem the case that there is this definite connection even in our culture today between this antagonistic unbelief in Jesus and offendedness where there's no real basis for it. Back in uh, 2003, Hollywood gave us the movie, uh, The Italian Job, 2003. It was a remake of a 1969, what, Michael Caine movie. It was highly successful. Hollywood greatly loved it. It was well-received. I think it's incredibly enjoyable. But its main theme is this. There is incredible satisfaction in getting revenge on the ones who have betrayed you. That's what makes people happy about the movie. I was betrayed. 
I got them back in spades. And you're caught up in this. You're caught up in this theme in the movie. And you're rooting for these guys. They're all bad guys. They're all thieves. (laughs) And you're rooting for them to be able to get back against the ones who betrayed them. The next year, 2004, we have a story of betrayal that's also on the big screen. It's Mel Gibson's, The Passion of the Christ. And Hollywood hates it. They claim it's overly violent. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) They're claiming it's anti-Semitic. But in reality, the reason why they really hate it is this. Jesus is not what they are. Because Jesus, all through the passion of the Christ and those 18 hours that are depicted, demonstrates again and again that he calls for forgiveness toward one's enemies. Instead, Hollywood wants revenge. They are offended that Jesus is more noble in every way than they are. His goodness and his righteousness deeply offends them. Now we should also notice that the the, the consequence of this antagonistic unbelief, this offendedness, is so extremely detrimental. Look in verse 5. Look at the consequences. It actually, according to what we read here, it incapacitates the working of God. Now, Mark tells us that with a few exceptions, he, Jesus, could not do any miracles there. Now, that's a strangeness. When you read this, when you think about the the sequence of these five stories, it it, it just seems strange. The first two, two stories in this series presents the sovereign power of Jesus over all the powers of nature, over all the powers of the supernatural. So why does this unbelief incapacitate Jesus to any degree at all? How could it be the case that, as Mark describes it, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few, a few sick people, and healed them? The answer is not difficult to discern. There is more than one kind of impossibility. There is more than one kind of impossibility. It was impossible that Jesus, it was impossible that Jesus should do what was morally and spiritually inconsistent with God's own righteous purposes. Now, although it was generally the case that God was incredibly generous in his healings through Jesus so that Jesus healed all sorts of people in Israel and even beyond the confines of national Israel, in all those healings that Jesus did, there is one kind of person that Jesus did not heal. We see no healings among those who are antagonistic toward the person and ministry of Christ. Among the scribes 
and the Pharisees who consistently attacked Jesus, we do not see Jesus healing at all. Although they see him healing many, he heals none of them. Likewise with the citizens of Nazareth. Now, the final aspect of the unbelief that we find characterized here is found in Jesus' own reaction, verse 6, where Jesus marvels at their unbelief. This points to the nature of unbelief as being contrary to a reasonable or fair expectation. Now think about that. We have unbelief here. Jesus marveling at their unbelief, which points to the fact that there's something so unreasonable about their unbelief that it would be reasonable for for us to expect they would have embraced Jesus. It was, in fact, seemingly Jesus' own sense of things that it would have been reasonable for them to embrace him, but instead they reject him. Now, that's another instance, by the way, in these stories that we've been looking at where the true humanity of Jesus is presented to us rather than Jesus as some kind of Superman. There is no way of getting around the fact, you can't in any way get around the fact that Jesus is genuinely surprised, genuinely marveling at their unbelief. I tried to find some way around that in terms of word studies and, and looking at it and commentators and so forth. Uh, the only way you can get around it is, act, is to say, well, Jesus only acted like he was surprised. He only acted like he was marveling at this unbelief, that Jesus was just pretending something, and Mark is recording what he's pretending. But then, of course, you run into all the problems of then saying, well, where is Jesus truly human and where is he not? Where is he authentically living out an incarnation as a true human being and where is he not? I can't answer all the questions, but the truth of the matter is we recognize from the passage that Jesus was genuinely surprised. Now, first of all, it was contrary to reason, as we look at this passage, it was contrary to reason that Jesus should be rejected by the citizens of Nazareth. Why was it reasonable that Jesus should have been embraced, not rejected? Well, for this reason, the people in Nazareth were in the most privileged position of all peoples because they had seen Jesus for 30 years grow up among them. We know from the testimony about the sinlessness of Jesus' life that he lived nothing other than an exemplary life among them. It's not like someone in Nazareth uh, could have pointed to Jesus and said, Wow, he comes back, what a changed person. He was never this kind of good guy before. Uh, what's happening here is contrary to everything we knew about Jesus. No, not at all. It's true that these mighty works were different. They were surprising. But not the person of Jesus himself, not his godly character. It's reasonable that they should have embraced Jesus 
simply because of the godliness of his character itself. We can also see that Jesus marveled because it was really contrary, their unbelief was really contrary to the sacred truth of their own Jewish worldview. It was shocking that the sin of unbelief would overtake them for probably three reasons. First, the sacred truth of the scriptures presented the sin of unbelief as the oldest sin recorded in human history. The story of the unbelief of Adam and Eve is the first tragedy to be described in the Bible. Every Jewish person had been raised that the unbelief of the first humans was the oldest sin. So the reality of unbelief, the existence of unbelief, what it looks like, all of this would have been well known to those who had the word of God. So why would these folks in Nazareth not be on their guard against the oldest of all sins? But in addition... The sacred truth of their scriptures made it clear that the sin of unbelief was the most common sin in the world. Uh, this is why the, the Gentiles, the, the Jews saw the Gentile world as a world of blindness and a world in darkness. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that the Jews saw themselves as a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. But because unbelief is so common, the people of Nazareth ought to have recognized it. They ought to have been able to see it within themselves. It's shocking that they did not recognize it in each other. And then thirdly, Jesus marveled because the sacred truth of the scriptures made it clear that the sin of unbelief is the deadliest of all sins. This sin is what separates all mankind from God. And this sin is that which condemned the generation of the Israelites to perish in the desert after the exodus and the desert wanderings. As God says in Psalm 95, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And the consequences of unbelief are eternally deadly Every Jew would know this. Jesus expected them to know this. So why are they not concerned to avoid it? You see, there was nothing more reasonable than that the people with whom, the people who had been there when Jesus was raised would see his wisdom. They would experience or see his mighty works. Nothing is more reasonable but that they would have embraced him in faith. It was a truly fair expectation on the part of Jesus to have been embraced. Therefore, Jesus marveled at the unbelief that rejected him. Now, I know that doesn't answer all the questions about how the divine Son of God could could marvel at something except that we confess it's his perfect humanity that marveled in this way. But the lessons for us in terms of the nature of unbelief 
must be these. Unbelief, as we encounter it in the world, will never stand before God as having any just cause at all. No one will ever have a valid basis for claiming, I did not believe because. Rather, what we see in Scripture revealing to us about the nature of human beings is this. Antagonistic unbelief is always insincere in what it seeks to do with the truth. It never seeks to understand the truth, but it always seeks to buttress its own unbelief. We also see from the story that that unbelief, antagonistic unbelief, will always generate reasons for being offended. The very truth of who Jesus is offends people. Jesus was crucified not because he had failed in some way. He was crucified because he was perfect. The entire human race is wrapped up in this resentment against Jesus. His very life is a reproach to all of us. His very life tells us what we are not. And in the antagonism of unbelief, that's offensive to the fallen human heart. But finally, in what Jesus and how Jesus reacts to this, what he expected is what was reasonable. What he expected is what was right. With respect to every category of the truth, the citizens of Nazareth should have embraced Jesus. And so on the final analysis, unbelief is absolutely incredible because unbelief is so deeply irrational. It doesn't make sense. No sense can be made of it at all. But ultimately, evil makes no sense either. So what can we take away? All of us have, quote, our own people. Like Jesus had his own people in Nazareth. We have our own people. If unbelief was surprising to Jesus and all of his wisdom and perfection, we should not be surprised when it seems so surprising to us as well. Uh, That is to say, it continues to surprise us when we read about the anti-faith of children who grew up in good, solid, evangelical homes. So in the December, New York Times, there was an article about uh, a Christian, a former Christian leader by the name of Bart Campalo. Now, Bart is the grown son of Tony Campalo, who was a notable, and has been, a notable evangelical author and pastor. Uh, Bart served for 25 years in Christian ministry, often alongside his father. But during that whole 25 years, he struggled continually with doubts about the Christian faith, always having real questions about Christianity. Finally, after a severe bike accident, he did as he describes it, a full divorce from Jesus. And today, he is the secular humanist campus ministry chaplain at USC. But listen, 
if most of those who knew Jesus all of his life developed an antagonistic unbelief against him, when they saw his wisdom, when they saw his great and miraculous works, it should not be surprising when we see children of godly parents, even our own children, walking away from the faith. So many Christian parents have seen this. And so many Christian parents have felt an intolerable, unending, unable to somehow move beyond it sense of guilt and failure over the fact that children raised in a Christian home walked away from the faith. There have been evangelical ministries that have placed all the blame upon the parents when this happens. And I look at this story and I say, if there's any gospel at all in this story, it's the fact that if people could grow up around Jesus and then see miraculous works and hear wisdom like you have never heard before. And they could reject Jesus. Then why should it surprise us that children growing up in our households could also walk away from the faith? But the final part of the story is the larger picture of what the New Testament presents. Antagonistic unbelief is not always the final story. We should never forget the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He writes to his young disciple Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 16. He encourages his younger disciple with respect to the power of God's grace to save sinners, even though, as he says, quote, formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul could name himself as the foremost of sinners to remind us that even the most antagonistic unbelief, even insolent, blasphemous persecution of the truth that is in Jesus can be overcome by the sovereign grace of God. So let us hope, let us believe, so that we might continue to pray for our own people who have rejected the Savior. Amen. Father, help us to see that in the final analysis, unbelief is, is inexplicable upon any and every rational ground, but so is evil. 
Help us to see that even among those that we love so deeply and so dearly, who seem to be so antagonistic to the faith as it is in Jesus, that nevertheless, we have your word telling us that even such as these can yet be saved. Even Jesus' own brothers were among those who were rejecting him at Nazareth. And yet, Father, as the story continues after the ascension of Christ, his brothers became important and prominent in the life of the church. And so we would pray, Father, help us, help us, help us, not to give up in coming to the throne of grace to keep seeking for your mercies upon those we love who do not know you. In Jesus' name, amen.